0: This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive-compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgetch, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD.
1: And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can.
0: We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. We were so humbled to be interviewing Dr. Jonathan Abramowitz today. Dr. John Abramowitz is a world-renowned clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina in America. John specializes in the treatment of OCD and other related disorders, and has done so for the past 25 years. During this time, he has conducted several research trials, leading to over 300 scientific publications. He trains clinical psychology students, has worked with a countless number of people with OCD and has authored several books and book chapters. It's no wonder he's recognized internationally as a leading author on the treatment and study of OCD.
1: In part one of our episode, you'll hear us talk with John about how he came to be involved in OCD research and treatment. And through this discussion, he shares with us the evolution of the inhibitory learning model and how it can help modify ERP and the way that OCD is treated. Let's get started. We are really privileged to have your time today to be talking with us about OCD. I suspect that most people will know of your work. I suspect a lot of people have your publications in their libraries and have probably come across, without knowing it, a lot of your concepts and a lot of your research in the work that they do or even in the treatment they're receiving. So it's a real gift, the time that you're giving it to us today. So thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. I appreciate it. And I am honored to be here as well. love talking about this stuff.
1: Just to kick us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself becoming so interested in OCD?
2: I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a PhD in clinical psychology. Went to school at the University of Memphis in the US. I got my degree in 1998. When I was in graduate school, I was fascinated by cognitive behavioral therapies, the idea that you can teach a person new skills, and have them overcome problems like anxiety depression assertiveness problems things like that was just fascinating to me since i was a kid i'd always been interested in behavior and it just kind of made sense so i knew i wanted to go to a graduate program that focused on behavioral therapy and i got assigned to work just kind of serendipitously i got assigned to work with a woman who had ocd when i was in graduate school early on in graduate school uh, I a woman had all sorts of thoughts that she was going to harm her loved ones. And this was in the mid-1990s. People didn't really understand OCD the way that we do now. And well, what, what do I do? I can't stop thinking about this. And the idea was snap a rubber band on your wrist. Make the thought go away. I, you know, I was doing some reading and learned about exposure and response prevention. And actually, no, we want to actually help them lean into these kinds of thoughts, confront them. I was really excited to do this, and I talked with my supervisor about it, and we did exposure. And we wrote out scenarios of her stabbing her loved ones and the blood gushing everywhere and stuff like that. And I was terrified. Like, what if she goes and does it?
0: Oh, yes. Right? Yep.
2: (laughs) Well, it worked. Like she, somehow I got her to think about these kinds of things and confront knives and sleep with a knife on her night table while her husband was sleeping next to her. And let's see if you stab him. I didn't think she would, but I didn't know for sure. It cures This really strong word for a problem like OCD changed the way that she thought about these thoughts. And she stopped doing all the checking rituals and praying and things like that. Over time, it took a while, but I was sold. I'm like, I want to learn more about this. I want to study this. So I went to an internship program, had the good fortune to work with folks like Edna Foa, Michael Kozak, Marty Franklin, people like that, and stayed on for a postdoc there and then started My first job was at the Mayo Clinic in the U.S., in Minnesota, where they were looking for someone to start an anxiety OCD program. So I did that for a few years and then knew I wanted to come back to the East Coast, where North Carolina is. The weather is much better and be in a psychology department. And so I've been here for 16 years now. And I love research. I love teaching. I love my clinical work. I love getting up every day, being a clinical psychologist, focusing on OCD. It's just fascinating.
0: We are so lucky, I think, in our profession to have such versatility in being able to do all of those things and to never have a dull moment, really, but also to be able to apply what you're researching and to really bring it to life and help people with what we're doing from an academic level. And it's magic to watch it happen. It's really lovely to see.
2: You hit the nail on the head. That's what I love is that you work with someone in clinical practice, you get some interesting ideas and hypotheses. And then you can take that to the lab and you can study it. And similarly, you can study stuff in the lab and then disseminate that to clinicians and use that in practice. And that's the research that I've tried to do is to try to do very practical stuff. I'm not interested in like, track this dot with your eyes, some of these kinds of really hardcore experimental stuff. I like the more kind of clinical, how is this applicable to the next person who comes in my office kind of work?
0: Recently you've really been developing the inhibitory learning model, which we are huge fans of because I think it's given us a really nice set of tools but also the language to be able to explain why the consistency of exposure therapy is really, really important when we're doing ERP. So for that I'm really grateful because it really helps clients understand but for those that aren't familiar, Do you want to shed some light into what the inhibitory learning model is all about?
2: Sure, absolutely. So, let me just start. For a long time, the idea was that when you do exposure therapy, the person confronts their feared situation and their anxiety goes up. And then, if you just kind of wait it out, that anxiety gradually comes down on its own. And that's a natural process and it usually happens. And that's called habituation. And for a long time, it was thought that habituation was kind of the same thing as learning, right? That once habituation happens, yeah, the person learns to not be so afraid. And the person is basically learning to not be afraid in front of whatever stimulus that they're afraid of if you repeat this over and over again. It turns out that more recent research on the way that humans learn and remember stuff shows that that's actually not how it works. It used to also be thought that the fear was replaced by a safety association. That's so like if I'm afraid of dogs for example and I do exposure over and over again and my anxiety comes down then I learn dogs are safe I don't have to be afraid. But it turns out that that's not how it works. We don't replace the fear memory with safety memories. Instead a new memory is created that competes with the fear memory. So now if I've done exposure to dogs and everything goes well, and I've learned dogs are safe, but there's still that idea in my mind that dogs could be dangerous. And so they're competing. The idea of inhibitory learning is to do exposure in a way that those new safety learning inhibits, tamps down, pushes away the old fear-based ideas. They're still going to be there. They're still going to be competing, but you want this. The next time I'm around a dog, I want that safety learning to win out. So there are these different techniques that we can do when we're doing exposure therapy, different techniques we can use that help that inhibitory learning for the new safety learning to inhibit the fear learning. And really, there's a handful of strategies that are basically just scientifically derived from that model.
0: How can you forget a fear? it's such a primal thing. It's near impossible to forget something that we're fearful of. And we see it in trauma theory as well, you know, in a sense of it's about learning how to cope with the triggers that you're having and to lean into that, but still do what you need to do in life, as opposed to that hamstringing you and not being able to do what you need to do.
2: And as humans, like we need fear. We are built To be afraid, that's the fight or flight system that's kept us alive for eons in a hostile environment when there are predators that back in the day that were bigger and stronger than us. Now we're more or less at the top of the predator chain, but it wasn't always like that. And we needed that fight or flight response, that anxiety response to survive. So we're built to really easily become afraid of things. It's, you know, thank goodness for that. It helps us survive. Similarly, we're built that it's harder to learn to feel that something is safe once we've been afraid of it. It's really difficult to learn safety, much more difficult than it is to learn to be afraid.
1: Can I ask then, why do you think it is that in some instances we can habituate? and sometimes we can't. What do you think that's about? Do we understand that? Because we know that, you know, sometimes when we're treating OCD, sometimes people are able to experience relief from that anxiety, or they are able to habituate to that trigger, and they are able to really move past. And sometimes they can't, and it's about coexisting with that anxiety and living life in spite of the anxiety. So, I mean, do we have a real understanding as to why sometimes we can and sometimes we can't? It's a
2: great question, Tori. I have a sense that when habituation is not happening, it's because the person is kind of white knuckling it and they're fighting it. And you're more likely to get habituation when the person really says, okay, I'm going to really put myself out there and really see that this isn't dangerous.
1: Yeah. So they're still bracing themselves and there's still a part of them believes that there is something to be afraid of here and that they have to prepare themselves in some way to protect themselves.
2: They might be doing some sort of mental ritual or mental avoidance, or just kind of my anxiety hasn't gone down yet. And if you do that, you're never going to have habituation, right? If you're waiting for habituation, I tell my clients this all the time, because sometimes they'll use the idea of habituation as almost like a ritual, like okay, if I just face my fear, then my anxiety will go down, and then I'll be okay. But that's not real exposure therapy. That's white knuckling it. So they're like, it hasn't gone down yet? Is this working? And hasn't? That's
1: not- <laughs> yeah. That's just standing in front of the thing you're afraid of. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: wondering if the intensity of the fear has anything to do with it, like a milder fear that's not that entrenched might be more inclined to habituate to versus something that's much more intense where you need to develop that competing response.
2: That's probably true. Yeah. The Stronger you hold those overestimates of threat, then you're going to have a harder time habituating and and losing those, changing those overestimates, for sure.
1: How do you think the, the inhibitory learning model then has influenced the way that we think about OCD from a theoretical perspective?
2: I think it's helped us understand more about what we need to do to help folks with OCD, maybe more than a theoretical understanding of OCD. Although, let me walk that back a little bit. It's helped me, and not only the inhibitory learning approach, but also the ACT approach, which I see as a lot of overlap there. It's helped me to understand OCD in terms of this is so much about giving up the fight against obsessions and against anxiety. So it's helped me to see it not so much as the person with OCD is afraid of these stimuli, but also they're afraid of private experiences that we also need to learn how to lean into. Anxiety, feelings of guilt, those not just right experiences that people have. Those are all part of that fear structure. In order for treatment to be maximally effective, I think we got to consider all of those private experiences as things that we want the person to learn that they can manage. So it's not just the situation. It's not just the intrusive thought, but it's all the other things that go with it are part of this whole thing.
0: And that's something that we were chatting about the other day, weren't we, Tori, in our lunch break? Sometimes I feel like we should record our lunch break discussion. (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's
0: <really interesting>. Yeah. <laughs> Where we were talking about how it's not just something like those those private thoughts, those private experiences are not just something that we should just be dismissing, that they are things that we need to acknowledge and encourage our clients to lean into, like you're describing, so they can learn that they can cope with all of those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings that accompany triggers and intrusive
2: thoughts. Yeah. A big push of the inhibitory learning model and ACT is fear tolerance. And the ACT movement would say, well, not just tolerance, right? You wouldn't just tolerate your friend, you would welcome them into your house. So you want to welcome fear and anxiety and guilt and all that, because those are just emotions. So fear being open to private experiences like fear, unwanted emotions, unwanted thoughts. Tori, back to your question before, I think those are things that were overlooked as part of OCD. Maybe the Inhibitory Learning the Act approach has helped us to understand, no, those are very much part of the problem, that people try to fight those things too. And we need to help them to be better at having them, make room for them.
1: Because it's really, it's that human part of the disorder, isn't it, that we can't really separate from. So that really contributes to the disorder, but also will still exist even when the symptoms have, have died away. I think this is a An aspect of just who we are.
2: That's exactly the point. With habituation exposure, what was happening was that people would do exposure therapy. They'd have habituation, they'd feel better. And then later on, they would get anxious and they would be, oh no, I failed. Oh no, it's coming back. You know, what do I do? My anxiety is supposed to go down. And that's not what we want. We want them to learn that it's okay to feel anxiety, that's not a failure. So Inhibitory learning exposure helps the person learn, not only is the situation dangerous, but those feelings, they're also manageable and not dangerous.
0: I imagine it would help manage relapse rates as well, in a sense of, which is an extension of what you were describing before, where clients often go, I'm not doing treatment right, I'm not habituating, my anxiety is not going down, or even why aren't I feeling anxious, like constant doubt. Whereas this approach kind of really strips all of that back, opens it up, brings in the human element and makes room for all of that, which I think anyway, anecdotally helps manage relapse.
2: Absolutely. And actually the focus of the inhibitory learning approach is on long-term maintenance. We can help folks be less anxious in the moment with good exposure, but then there is such a thing as the return of fear that can come about from A traumatic experience or just a surge of anxiety or there are other things that can bring about a return of fear. When you do inhibitory learning-based exposures, you're helping to inoculate folks against those longer-term return of fear situations, and that's one of the things that I like about it.
1: I think one of the big barriers, I mean, we've probably all come across in treating OCD is I think is that societal position that we've all been taught that actually status quo or our normal state is to be anxiety free and that anxiousness is actually a mental health problem. I mean, I know it's a big part of the psychoeducation and something that we have to thread through our therapy, but I actually find with some clients is very hard for them to let that perception go and that desire and that wish to be anxiety free and they really hold it it's something that they struggle to accept and embrace how do you work with that how would you work with clients who are struggling in that same way
2: i do a lot of psychoed about anxiety on the front end you know i used to just do that with folks who had panic attacks the barlow and krask psychoed you know the handouts about the physiology of anxiety I think anyone with clinical anxiety would benefit from learning what's actually happening to you when you're anxious. And anxiety is not something we need to fight. It's your fight or flight response. It's as natural as breathing, blinking, eating. We need that to survive. Let's change our relationship to anxiety. So I spend, not with everybody, it's kind of like when I can tell that folks are struggling with that we go back and we talk about, let's change our relationship to this anxiety. Let's see it as part of you, your friend. The more you fight it, the worse it gets. So let's befriend it. And you're right. And a lot of people are like, what? Anxiety can be good. It's often enlightening to have that kind of discussion. But And you're right, not everybody buys into it. And unfortunately, I have found, again, anecdotally, that kind of a struggle is a predictor of poor response. When folks aren't able to see that. And of course, it's not black and white either. It's on a continuum. So to the extent that someone can't see that, they're going to have more difficulty because they're going to be white knuckling it. They're going to be fighting it.
0: And I think those moments for me anyway, are an indicator that we're more and more, I'm feeling like we're really dealing with an emotion regulation difficulty rather than a thought fault difficulty. Because a lot of the time, clients will say I know this doesn't make sense but when I'm in that moment I can't help it and everything my frontal lobe they don't say that but my frontal lobe shuts down (laughs) (laughs) but you know their frontal lobes are shutting down their amygdala is firing like they're thinking emotionally they're not thinking rationally and logically that can be really helpful too in a sense of explaining to clients what's actually going on so that they have an understanding and it can be a bit of a predictor
2: as well. A you know, big part of OCD, people do rituals to try to control their anxiety and among other things, thoughts, uncertainty. For a lot of people, that emotion regulation problem, that's in the mix of the factors that contribute to OCD. We don't have good theories about cause because it's so complicated, but emotion regulation is definitely in the mix.
0: That's that fight with anxiety. Sometimes you can really see a client just like white-knuckling and fighting against it until they exhaust the pattern. And once they've exhausted that pattern and they finally drop that struggle, you really see change happening. It's like a switch being flicked.
1: Do you know I was talking to a young person the other day who had been in a state of panic really, really elevated for days and days and days, actually more than a week, and just kind of went, I ran out of steam, so I kind of went, fuck it.
2: (laughs) Oh, we curse on this podcast. Okay, I didn't realize that. All right. Bring it on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And she just went, in you come. I'm done. I can't fight you. I can't go any further. Come on in. And she was like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) And my anxiety dropped. This works. What
2: I want
0: happened. I got relief.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so ACT has these. Creative helplessness creative helplessness. I know enough about act to be dangerous. I don't know a lot <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. I use the digging metaphor a lot, right? You're in this ditch and you're digging and digging and digging and it's only getting deeper. And so you think, well, I just need to dig better and faster. And so go back, but it's not the way you're digging. It's the agenda of digging. And there's one line that I learned from Mike who who is a collaborator in some of the studies that I've done if I gave you a ladder to climb out of the ditch, you would probably try to dig with it, <laughs> I love that. and just to show folks that, yeah, you know what you're doing, it isn't working. We need to put down that shovel, right? When that light goes on, boy, it's a difference maker.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah, it really is. You can take a bullet train all the way through to recovery from then on. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Not quite, but just about. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive-compulsive
1: disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy
0: and production support from Wavelength Creative to make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and, and break, break the rules. rules.